Mansplanation is a show about two men trying to break free from the prison of toxic masculinity. They offer no professional advice or suggestion. They will occasionally use adult language and will often discuss examples of violence and malicious behavior, so parental guidance is recommended. No, no, you have no complaints. I don't think I do. Not on uh, this past week or the one come. Not personally. No complaints. Mm, no, 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 no. Things are going okay here. How about you? Uh, I mean, I have a lot of complaints, but not about my own life. Hit me. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, the past few days have been a shit show. strong swimmer Becca grew up super country so a lot of uh, ponds and lakes and stuff like that so yeah she had to uh she had to become a strong swimmer mm, no choice otherwise she wouldn't be here today yeah that too but realistically what are you gonna do at that point you know everybody else is doing this you you sink or swim mm. literally what are you gonna do what are you gonna do are you a strong swimmer tim uh am i a strong swimmer are you a swimmer Am I a swimmer? Do I do I swim? I swim. Okay. I know how to swim. Okay. Um, I know how to swim so much that for a while, it was sort of the kind of thing that when people said, oh, I don't know how to swim, it kind of was like, what do you mean you don't know how to swim? Really? Um, yeah, because I, I grew up in water. Okay. Uh, every summer, pool, lake, you had a ocean. Pool? We had a pool. Nice. Uh, that was what one requirement my father had, apparently, about being a homeowner. Make sure you guys have a, a pool. That we would have a, a pool. That's awesome. I wish we would have had one when we were kids. They, yeah. They, my parents built their house back when, you know, middle, middle income pump, people could do that. Um, they built their home with that in mind, that part of it would be for a pool. And actually, like, I lived in, I feel like parts of Pittsburgh are like that, but I definitely, I definitely, ugh. I definitely lived in a place where, you know, almost everybody had a pool. Okay. Um, like, See, I'm kind of, I'm kind of the opposite. We, we did not have a pool. There was one pool in the neighborhood, and uh, it was a family pool. So if you were friendly with them, they'd let you come over and swim. But aside uh-huh. from that, there wasn't a public swimming pool, anything like that. We never went to the lake. We never went to the ocean. So I can survival swim, and I can like get from point A to point B in the water. But I'm not a strong swimmer. Right. Um, it's hard. I mean, it's hard if you don't grow up doing it, as I now. Yeah. As an adult, no. Um, but as a teenager, I'm like, what do you, what do you mean you don't know how to swim? Hmm. It's like saying you don't know how to walk. It's like, isn't this just thing that human beings know? Is it like saying like, you know don't how know to do? how to ride a bike? No, different. I think I lost you there. Oh, no, you I, I lost you. Right You're here. not moving. Okay. Okay. Are you back? Can you hear me? I am. It's not okay. like riding a bicycle. Okay. Because that's something that's a that's a machine. 
That that's something that if you have twenty dollars in your near garage sale, though, you can get a bicycle. Whereas a pool, yeah. I mean, getting to one or having one in your backyard or having a body of water, it's not something a lot of people have. Yeah, but to me, it, 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 so what? We 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 are we spend the first nine months in the womb. We are aquatic this is true. This is life true. forms. This <laughs> no 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 being on Earth is you know innately operating a mechanical gyroscope that keeps itself upright. Did you ever learn to ride a bike? I, no. I remember at one point you were taking classes. No. no, I never took classes either. I tried to teach myself. Okay, um, but no, I never learned to ride a bike. It's. I think it's like one of those things. Like when you're an adult, like I don't have the ability to ride my bike to work. I live too far from work. Mm-hmm. I take mm-hmm. a lot of highway. Mm-hmm. I'll ride with my kids eventually, but I mean, I haven't been on a bike easily in ten years. But and and it was a couple times here and there. So like really riding a bike, I haven't really ridden a bike since I was probably in high school, maybe. Right, but you could get on one. I could get on one. I'd be comfortable. And and you would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. It would be enjoyable. I'd have a good time. Which to me, I think if you throw most people (laughs) into water Mm -hmm. in a safe place, they would be able to figure out how to swim. I would be able to get to the wall and I'd be able to tread water for a couple minutes. But after that, no, not so good. Yeah. I mean, it's your your center of balance change. It's the, you know, it's to me, it's the, right. It's just the same as riding a bike, right? If you're asking me now, I understand. Swimming is like riding a bike. All, all I'm saying is, right now, aside from my kids, there's not much of a reason for me to ride a bike or anything like that, or swim. Actually, yeah, sw- swimming is a lot more of a social thing. I mean, riding a bike. I'd have to get from yeah. point A to point B. Yeah, more often than not, I just drive. The place where I yeah. live is not particularly bike friendly. Oh sure, no, it's one of the most bike friendly cities in the world. Uh, not the part of it I live in. I don't know if that's true at all. It's it's actually pretty good. There's a huge bike culture. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes the city more or less bike friendly. They have opened up a lot of bike lanes in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's become a lot more bike friendly and bike understanding. In, yeah, than than most, you know, post industrial cities, and more uh, post apocalyptic cities too. Oh, how about I introduce the show? Let's do After that. We talk for like fifteen minutes. Bikes. Uh, welcome to Mansplain Nation, a discussion between two friends about their failures in manhood and what they are trying to do to be better. My name is Tim. My name is Todd. And here we are yet again. One Two more guys. week. Two guys and a podcast. Yeah. It has to exist, right? Mm-hmm. So what's going on, Tim? What's going on with me? Sure. I just I just told you what was going well, on. What's going on in general? Um yeah, it's 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 been a bad week personally or just i don't want to say just the stuff in the news because that's that's some serious stuff in that uh, the stuff in the news yeah the 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 pain and suffering that, that is being widely broadcast in the world right now hasn't helped um no just change of seasons time the time change it's always um, rough. always always throws me 
Yeah, I've and uh, I don't know if it's related or the two things just happened together. Uh, but I had a migraine this week, and so the past few days I've just been feeling hungover. Uh, yeah, um, played D and D on Friday. Awesome. And yeah, I had to call the game. I was DMing, and we had reached like a good endpoint, but. I think we could have played for like two more hours um, kind of thing. But. I haven't played D&D since high school, and then it was mandatory. Who's bringing a two-liter of Mountain Dew? Who's bringing money for pizza? Who's bringing Core Ranch Doritos? Those are probably yeah. some of the strongest high school memories. Yeah. 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 What'd you play? Um, I played a thief. Of course you did. Halfling thief with a plus uh, two ogre yeah. slaying knife. Uh, just a, a human thief. Uh, okay. It was kind of like uh, one person said they would be the you know, the tank, the bruiser. One person would be the right. healer. I'd be the one that could backstab and uh, pick locks. And I fell right that also I fell into a rabbit hole where I just have all, all these notes. And so yeah, I have a I have a couple things. Um, so the past few weeks we've been talking about, you know, sexuality, my sexuality, my experiences. And for me, it's been difficult to talk about because that's sort of my deal mm-hmm. is uh, talking about myself surprisingly to people. It, it, it might surprise people that I find it very difficult to talk about myself and my inner life. Not surprised by that at all. Okay. <laughs> You're not. Not not even a little. You are the most... I remember having a conversation with you once, and it took me a half hour for me to tell for you to tell me what your job was. <laughs> you danced around it, and finally, I think I literally had to like, put my hand on your arm and say, Tim, what the fuck do you do for a living? <laughs> I think you're thinking of somebody else. You told me you carved people's names on the moon with a laser. You went off on a <laughs> diatribe about the tick in Chairface Chippendale. You told me that you work in cameras from the future. <laughs> hey, it's the voice of Tim the editor, not Tim the host of the show. All these things Todd said were true things that I told him. I feel that they are accurate depictions of what my vocation would have been at the time. And Chairface Chippendale is a deep cut even for me. Uh, yeah, it took me a it took me a while to realize what Todd was saying there. So don't be upset if you didn't. But he was making a reference to the uh, Tick villain, Chairface Chippendale, which uh, I have not engaged with the Tick as medium, read or seen in twenty years probably. So good memory on Todd. I I guess I need to trust him. You told me that it was a uh, man. There were so many. How do you remember this? Because it was a half hour of my life that I will never get back. Oh well, that's mean to me. It sounds like a wonderful experience. Yeah, truly was, truly was. And when I got an answer, I I I could ask a follow up question, which I was terrified to do. (laughs) So to talk about for me, talk about sexuality and gender. And right, one of the reasons I went to the Kinsey report, I think, is because it's very connected to, you know, psychology and human behavior and like a very like clinical study of it. I think because, right, I have a lot of inner pain 
surrounding these topics. So right, I want to talk about pain and how we manage pain. And, uh, you know, my, my, my first thought was, oh, well, this is a good time for us to talk about 12 steps. Cause that, that's like the 12 step program, MA marijuana anonymous was, I say my first step into learning how to talk about myself okay, and not being afraid to talk about myself. Okay. And I, right. I know you, you know, the 12 step program and you may know the history, but I, I, the 12 steps and Alcoholics Anonymous for me is, is intractably linked to masculinity Mm, and manhood and toxic masculinity. Okay. Both in a way to respond to it and try to help and support. To me, it's like one of the first men's health groups, uh, at least in America. Like I was surprised that the reason I said it's like, oh, I wanted to talk about AA and the 12 steps, but I went down this rabbit hole of, you know, how, how it started. Okay. I know a little bit about this, but my, my stance on AA is probably drastically different from yours because I came to AA not as a, an addict, but I came to it as um, realistically an intern. Um, when I was going for my master's in social work, I one of the internships I did was with a local drug and alcohol treatment provider here, mm-hmm. and I worked specifically with adolescents, and it was something I, I really fell hard in love with. Mm-hmm. It, it was a, For me, it was a wonderful program. I'm not a religious guy, but um, I, I used to say frequently that if I had a religion, I think it would be something like a 12-step program. I really thought it was powerful where people would get up and share without judgment, the harsh parts of their life, and then come together and support one another and uh, do so literally with people that are at risk of falling over the edge and not coming back. I mean, I'd worked with kids that had gone on with crippling crack cocaine addiction. Some of them died. Some of them went to jail. Some of them went Mm -hmm. to prison. Some of them went to college. Some of them made it home. And it Mm -hmm. was just, for me, it was a powerful and wonderful thing. It's something I, I truly enjoyed. And so, yeah, I, that, that's also why I wanted to talk to you about it, specifically as a mental health professional therapist who, right, I, I'm just going to use the word 12-step program. That's fair. Because um, there's a lot of different 12-step programs out there, whether it's Marijuana, Sex Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, and so on. First, I just want to say, you know, addiction is no joke. True. It's not a moral failing. No. It's not something to be ashamed of. Uh, and whatever you or, you know, whatever you listener out there, Todd, me, whoever are doing to stay in, you know, in recovery, keep your sobriety, you know, be a, be a, a healthy person, um, that, that can only be decided by you, your family, your doctor, your therapist, and regardless of what you've found. And, and I think that's why 12 step programs and AA are so powerful in the therapy mental health community because they are a, a, a resource to point people. It's like, hey, I can't, unfortunately, as your therapist, I cannot just be your therapist 24-7 and be your sole support structure. At least my understanding, the view of addiction treatment is you know, as many different kinds of support structures as possible to help you you know, it, including professional medical help therapy. But a- anyway, whatever you're doing, keep, keep doing it. Um, I, you know, every, I think, I think one of the, my big problems 
at least where my problems come from is hearing other people say, this worked for me and it should work for you. And that turns me off because it's like, well, as, as far as psychology and addiction goes, it really is a personal thing, right? Definitely. And, yeah. You're nodding. Yeah. That, 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 yes, there are broad concepts and things that work for multiple people. I'm just going to jump right in. So I'm going to start in the 1700s. <laughs> is that too far back for you, Todd? That is way too far back. We got about 20, yeah. we got about 27 minutes. So maybe, maybe we could start like a hundred or so years earlier. Okay. 1600s. And then part two of this 10 part series will be the 1700s. No. So I'm just going to say the, the like very first, everything shares this common history with native American, what were called circles, mm-hmm. um, which were essentially like the, the first support group for native Americans who, you know, were dealing with alcoholism. Let's, let's just trundle right along through, you know, 200 years in the United States of treating it like a, moral failing, a temperance problem, you know, and at the turn of the century, what everybody kind of colloquially knows as the cure comes along. Uh, and, and so doctors start finally treating it as a disease. And again, the way it was mostly treated was with opioids and other addic- addicted substances, right? Trading, trading one addiction for another. In 1921, an American Lutheran missionary, Frank Buckman, founded a movement called a First Century Christian Fellowship. Okay. The point of the fellowship was one of evangelicalism. So he he sort of was this Lutheran, had a conversion experience, decided he needed to do more evangelical stuff. And at some point, the fellowship becomes to known as the Oxford Group. Um, in 1938, it gets renamed to, which I find hilarious, the Moral Rearmament Group, the MRA. And then finally, in 2001, it is, and now it is known as the Initiative for Change. So this is an organization that still exists. There was no hierarchy, no temples. He said this was not an organized religion. There were no workers, no salaries. The only plan was God's plan. And you couldn't actually be considered a member because the group didn't keep any lists of membership. There was no definite location. It was just simply a group of people from all walks of life who said, we will surrender our lives over to God. That only this this very strict understanding of the Bible and Christianity that God will tell us how to live our lives and what to do. The, the the main tenant the the movement was guided by this these four absolutes that um, they were moral standards of honesty purity unselfishness and love to be called the four absolutes to be achieved by following four spiritual practices the sharing of our sins and temptations with another Christian surrender our life past present and future into God's keeping and direction restitution to all whom we have wronged directly or indirectly. And listening for God's guidance and carrying it out, uh, and I'm assuming that sounds familiar. It does, yeah. And this wasn't like these. This wasn't something that this guy solely came up with. These kinds of ideas were happening within the evangelical and Christian community as a reaction to the ills of modern society and dealing with a global society that, as 
society became more global, you know, how, how and and more diverse, how do you know what to do, what what's right? The main crux of it was they would have these teams, you know, people who were identified as being part of this movement, uh, and they would travel and have house parties um, at private homes, hotels, resorts, college dorms. Again, no formal agenda or organization. It was just time devoted to talks by team members about sin, surrendering, quiet time, these four absolutes, guidance, and and the idea of intelligent witness, which is, again, that other Christian that you will share your sins and temptations with. And, and so one of the biggest forms of outreach was uh, dealing with helping men with sobriety and alcoholism. The church was, you know, after essentially doctors were told, you can't be prescribing drugs to cure addiction anymore. Like the, it was passed as law. Doctors were no longer allowed to intervene. And so it kind of fell to the church to help men out with being sober and being al- alcoholics. Uh, Carl Jung, who you may know. Perfect. Famed psychiatrist, uh, founder of analytical psychology. Somebody asked him, "You know, how do you feel about a patient who comes to you and is a- and is asking about God and finding help through religion and faith?" And his response was, "My attitude to these matters is that as long as the patient is really a member of a church, he ought to be serious. He ought to be really and sincerely a member of that church, and should not go to a doctor to get his conflicts settled." when he believes that he should do it with God. For instance, when a member of the Oxford group comes to me in order to get treatment, I say, you are in the Oxford group. So long as you are there, you settle your affair with the Oxford group, I can't do it better than Jesus. And so it may now becoming no surprise that I'm going to tell you that the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, met through the Oxford group. Bill Wilson, this is how he got sober was famous Bill W. Bill W. Um, with this group through through I believe Calvary of Christ Church um, in New York, and he was traveling salesman businessman. He was out of state. He was out of you know he was out of his own support structure, and he was like, oh, I'm gonna fall back and I'm going to drink again, and so I need to talk to a fellow alcoholic. Because that was at the time was the great the greatest success success rate that even church or you know whatever sanatorium or spas had was these people were supporting each other. The alcoholics only were able to get through it by talking to other alcoholics, and so he called a church, a local church, and they put him in touch with the Oxford group, and they put him in touch with one of their own members who was struggling, Smith. Mm-hmm. After a few years of them essentially working within the Oxford group, attracting alcoholics, because Bill Del- both of them were very big on, we need to find and save as many alcoholics as we can, and the more alcoholics we have and the more alcoholics we save, the more we can find, which is mm-hmm. a, ve- a very evangelical Christian model of marketing, messaging, okay, saving people, right? Getting the message out there, the more we save, the more we can find and save them too. And because they were so focused on alcoholics, uh, other members of the Oxford group criticized them and you know, were saying you shouldn't be having meetings for alcoholics only, you shouldn't be solely focused on this. 
And so they broke off and formed AA and then the 12 steps. Bill W. talks about before, in his early attempts to recover, he would constantly hear from colleagues, friends that uh, they found God, they found Jesus, and that's how they mm-hmm. stayed sober. And it would break his heart because, like, I couldn't. I, I, you know, he's like, I didn't, I wasn't religious, I wasn't spiritual. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, having done a 12 step program for almost two years, having run a group, uh, that is like still the, the biggest thing that people have is this whole higher power thing. Like that's one of the things that sponsors or senior members, um, mm-hmm. old heads, uh, are often asked to talk about like, what, what does that mean? So, and, and so much so that most modern 12 step groups have taken the wording God out and refer to it as your higher power and whatever that means to you. When I ran a group, that's exactly how we did it. We had one kid stand up and say, "My, my you're going to laugh at this, everybody, but my higher power outside is this tree. Hmm. And it's, it's the tree's been there. I've seen it like survive pretty terrible storms. I see people uh, sit underneath it, read it, be comforted by it. And to me, that tree is my higher power. It's something that it's a symbol of strength and of um, comfort to to me and to people. And that's something I always liked. And that was something that was accepted by the young people in the group and the old heads in the group too. And one of the things that, right, the, the one thing about 12 steps is, is that it's a very one size fits all kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a build your, build your own. Come as you are. My my meetings start to get a lot of flack from old people because our own meeting was voting on essentially removing a lot of the readings, right? Removing a lot okay. of the standard stuff and just making it a talk meeting. Um, and that sort of thing, right? Like groups are allowed to, they don't like the word religion. They definitely hate the word cult. Sleepy Todd, I'm putting sods to sleep with the history lesson. It's not you. It's the uh, four-year-old and the two-year-old that get up at six o'clock yeah. in the morning. It's your own personal 12-step program. They're, they're your higher power. Oh, yeah, they are. So yeah, uh, uh, right. I really wanted to spend that time to talk through that history, the origin story of 12 Steps, because really my problem with AA programs like AA, the the big book, the the very hardline 12 Steps is the same problem that I have with organized religion and Christianity in general. And right, one, one of the things that separates AA from organized religion is that it's very what the group it's very oriented on the group level. Something something a sponsor told me who he was in all kinds of 12-step programs but he he said was AA especially it's a hammer meaning that's good for one thing but it's not a flexible thing. Meaning that whenever you talk to people who quote unquote have had success with using AA or a 12-step program as their sole means of staying sober, it's a very kind of strict, this this is the way you do it, you just do it. There's very little room for personal growth. Mm. The twelve the twelve steps aren't designed to teach you how to grow. They're teach you. They're designed to keep you sober, right? Like that's the primary focus. I think I would disagree with you on that. Okay, I, I would think that recognizing the reason why you are drinking, whether you're battling up against some past trauma, or anything, you know, addressing that, and in turn also making amends to the people that you may have wronged. I, I would say that's definitely something that would contribute to growth. 
not only do I have to stay sober, but I also have to own my shit. I have to go and call that person that I wrecked their car. I stole money from them. And I have to make amends where possible. I can't buy you a new car right now, but I'm going to give you some money. I'm going to repay the money that I took from you. I owe you an apology because I was drunk and cheated on you. Whatever. I, I think that's something that would really lead to growth. And, and I, yeah, so that's why I, I think he was wrong there. Okay. When I was doing it and what I would hear from um, you know, people who were like, 10, 20 years sober was uh, this, this idea that you couldn't be fixed, right? Like you, you had no power over this thing Mm. that the 12 steps was the only way for you to be for, to, to go forward with it. Okay. They don't inhibit growth and you certainly can go through the, grow through them. I, I did, right? Like I do feel like I had success um, with the 12 step program I was doing, but at some point I had to go, you know, find something else. Like at some point it wasn't enough or it wasn't what exactly I needed. It sounds like you grew out of it. Um, and, and I think the, the issue I, I don't, and again, and again, (laughs) the issue I have with it is not if it works for you, if it works for you, please do it. If you've been in AA for 20 years and it's kept you sober. Yeah. That's not. I do not have an issue with that. Stay at it. Good luck. My issue with it was that there was nothing within the program itself that showed you how to do it. Right? You were you were relying on your sponsor. You were relying on other members of the group. Uh, uh, you know, a facilitator to kind of show you how to do it because they're there's definitely wrong ways to do right like there's definitely ways to do the 12 steps and and oh god yeah i have memory of taking a kid to a kid called me up and said i I need a meeting right now you're the only Mm -hmm. reliable adult in my life can you get me to one so i scooped the kid up and i took him to a meeting that i just found kind of like by google Mm -hmm. it was the worst meeting i've ever been to it was a nightmare and uh, it was the only time I think I've ever left early from one of these things. And I, I remember the the one per the one speaker got up and said some of the effect of, "You can do the twelve steps in about an hour if you really want to." And he just like you know, it's like uh, my higher power. Yeah, I got a higher power. It's that. It's God. Okay, next one, and just kind of rattle them all off. And everybody there was just kind of like nodding, like yeah, yeah. It's like, and to me, I looked at this kid and I looked around. It's like these are people that are basically just filling out uh, a meeting slip to hand to their PO to check off a box mm-hmm. to eat some free donuts get some bad coffee maybe feel marginally better about themselves but no one there was interested in doing hard work right. no one there was interested in looking at themselves facing their demons fixing anything right. so i got that kid out of there right away and we found another one and right good oh good but that that's that's a bad experience right like that's that's not very bad yeah, yeah. I'm saying that to support your. Yeah, they, there's some ones out there that do everything. You see that, but you don't see that as the rule. God, no, no. I've had so many more positive experiences than I did negative experiences. I think that might be the only negative experience that I have had with AA or NA. So when I started doing MA, um, you know, I was seeing a psychiatr- psychiatrist too, and she was right again, very big on it. She's like, oh, uh, you know keep going to that, keep doing it, do it as much as you can. Uh, you know, it's free. She's like, it does better work than I could ever do. And hmm. 
And right, she, I, I was also, you know, I was also starting to take medication. Can I ask you a question just to kind of like get into that statement that she had right there? Were you doing like anything like cognitive behavioral therapy or anything like that? I was on my own. Okay, on your own, but not through her. No, she wasn't a good psychiatrist. <laughs> Sounds like it. Okay, never mind. Move on. She criticized me once because she kept saying, you don't talk like somebody who's an AA. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. She's like, you're just not using the lingo. And and that's, again, my problem is like, yeah, connect the dots. It, it, to me, the way it was, all, was always messaged to me and the way I understood it. And again, my own personal experience was the 12-step program, AA, especially AA. I don't really know. I have never experienced NA. I, like, and, I, and I keep hitting that because they are all vaguely different. They're all slightly different a very connect the dots kind of go through the motions you know fake it till you make it one day at a time built you know built straight into their it's the differences and the similarities between a pine tree and an elm tree they're both trees they both follow the same basic structure but they're very different creatures but right the whole idea is just go through the motions until it works and to me that is still looking at addiction in general as a moral willpower failing like Oh, you relapsed into addiction. You stopped going to meetings. You know, you you fucked up your life again because you just stopped doing the work. Mm-hmm. I I I see that judgment, even though it does come from a very science based place of and looking at addiction as a disease, because you're right, you're treating it as a disease. It's still kind of it feels like a moral judgment on the person. Mm-hmm. You know, I made a comment uh, a few weeks ago about how Trump doesn't drink and how that bothers me. And that might say more about me than people who don't drink. But it, it's it's sort of like it, the joke was mostly it's like he behaves this way and he doesn't drink, right? Like this is kind of behavior that we associate with someone who's been drinking um, yeah. the way Trump behaves. It's kind of like if he was drinking, then there would be a very easy, okay, he must have been drunk. He must have been under the influence of something. And for him to say these things continually over and over again and one-upping himself in horror each time he does, completely sober, it's like, oh my God, there's got to be something, some terrifying mental illness there. Yeah. And, I don't know. Uh, what's been getting you through this week? I mean, right. This is again, another scratch the service surface conversation. Yeah. yeah. This could be to be continued. Oh yeah. This will, no, this is definitely to be continued. I, I, the thing is getting me through real quick is, um, De La Soul's seminal debut album, Three Feet High and Rising. First of all, it is an album of wonderful, joyous. It's a celebration. It's genius. It's it's at a time when hip hop was almost was steering hard towards gangster rap. And for good reason, it was focusing on positivity. It was focusing on a lot of good stuff. And it was also having hard conversations that could not be had within the realm of gangster rap. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's familiar with this album will note that you cannot buy it right now. You can stream it on YouTube, but you can't get it on hmm. Apple. You can't get it on Amazon. And the re- two reasons why was, number one, uh, it's a it's an album made heavily of samples okay. that turns out, spoiler alert, were not authorized. The record label Tommy Boy said that they did get authorization for everything that they put in there. Once it basically went platinum, uh, everybody came running for their money and say, and, and the the group itself has made almost no mm-hmm. money from the the debut of this album. They've actually lost a lot of money from lawsuits. Sure. 
they're on the verge of re-releasing it, and now they have all the copyrights, all the samples, everything cleared. But uh, their record label, Tommy Boy, has said we basically they intend to keep ninety percent of all profits and allow the three members of De La Soul to have the remaining ten percent. So um, if uh, if anybody goes on Twitter, if anybody follows Chuck D or any of the old school hip hop uh, gods, uh, there is a hashtag uh, not my Tommy Boy. Tommy is not my boy. And uh, it's in protest that uh, people will not support Tommy Boy by their products hmm. until they're willing to give De La Soul uh, a much more fair cut of the profits. I mean, this is uh, without De La Soul, there would not be any far side. There would not be a uh, tribe called Quest. Or, you know, I would say the Wu-Tang Clan would be an incredibly different hmm. band. And uh, they changed the face of hip hop. They continue to make amazing things. And I think the world needs to experience their first album because it is transcendent. That's what's been getting me through. Three feet high and rising. We're doing the wrong kind of podcast. We should be doing a <laughs> hip hop, the history of hip hop. 80s hip hop. two white guys. Yeah. I, I, could, I could do that. <laughs> hip hop and punk and ska were like my jams when I was in high school. One wall was uh, uh, Sid Vicious. The other wall was Public Enemy in my room. I, those, that, those were the posters. We're going to talk about that. We're going to be talking about that next week. What's good in you three, Tim? Nothing. Oh, Literally. Man. Legion, I guess. It's so good, uh, isn't it? I don't know. Is it? Oh, where are you at? Where are you at? I finished season one. Oh, man. One of my favorite things about Legion are the psychic battles. When two characters are engaged in a psychic battle, it manifests itself as a dance-off, and it is wonderful. Isn't the whole show psychic battle? You know what? I'm going to say it's the opposite, and I think it should be more of the show. I know I, I I didn't make those connections. I noticed that I think season one there are two big dance numbers. There's a lot. I I really I like it. Uh, I might wait for season three to finish before I continue watching it because it's it's driving me nuts. It, it's a maddening show, and yeah, I know too much about the comic book character to be like. Mm-hmm. None of this is real, right? None of it, it's mm-hmm. all real. Not, not some of it is. No, none of it is. None of it is. You enjoy and be maddened by season two. No, because I no, I I, I because I I piss you off. I read ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I know where the plot goes, and I'm like, okay, it's still like treating this as this is all really happening, but it isn't. It's not. But I I'm like just at some point it's going to be like, yeah, this was all in his head. I'm like, no, please, maybe, possibly. I, I yeah, it it reminds me too much of Twelve Monkeys. Okay, but it wasn't in his head. Exactly. That's yeah. why I'm like, but uh, I my feeling is season three is just going to be an explanation about what was happening in reality that made him think that all these things were happening. Mm-hmm. But I'm yeah, fine. Good night, Todd. <laughs> Good night, Tim. See you soon, bud. Hopefully, I get to see you in person soon. Yeah, summer maybe. That'd be cool. This has been Mansplanation. Thanks for listening. Uh, I will be posting references in the show notes as well as some, uh, you know, information on addiction treatment and support. If anybody out there is looking for it, it will be in the show notes. So please check that out. I'm always posting links in the show notes. Some things don't even get mentioned during the show. So thank you. To the artist Kala for the use of our theme song Freed from Freed off their album Trinity. You can listen to more of their music at Kala.com. As always, don't keep yourself in a box. 